Hi folks, I'm Mark Fallows and this is the Impossible Network podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast player. And please leave a rating and a review because it helps more people find us. If you want to find out more of what we get up to, or suggest who we interview next, follow us on Instagram at The Impossible Network, or visit theimpossiblenetwork.com. Okay, let's get started. The main message that was communicated to me is, you are loved, you have worth, because you are here. And that message, especially for, you know, I think a lot of us, and for me, a fat kid who felt very isolated, it wasn't that I shouldn't try to do good things and love others. It was that at the core of who I am, I am loved and I have worth. And that's a message, I think, especially in 2019, with AI and with a lot of other technologies, that message is not often shared in ways that I think I'm trying to share more often. I don't mean just only the... uh, Christ-oriented traditions, those traditions are shared in many global traditions. But that message of you have worth because you are here is something I think more people need to hear more. Massachusetts-born, actor, author, musician, an expert on the ethics of artificial intelligence is this week's guest, John C. Havens. John is currently the executive director for the IEEE Global Initiative on the Ethics of Autonomous and Intelligent Systems. Over the past three years, the initiative has produced Ethically Aligned Design, a free Creative Commons book, over 250 pages written by 600 global experts created to ensure that autonomous and intelligent systems honour human rights and end-user values while prioritising human well-being and ecological sustainability. John is also the author of Artificial Intelligence, Embracing Humanity to Maximise Machines. He's a frequent contributor to Mashable and The Guardian and a former EVP of a top 10 PR firm. He's also founder of a non-profit called The Hapathon Project and a former professional actor with over 15 years experience. If you want to follow John, you can find him on Twitter at John C. Havens. I should point out that John's views are his own on this show and don't necessarily represent the formal positions of the IEEE. Like last week, this is a two-parter. Part one, John and I discuss his upbringing, the parental impact of his psychiatrist father and his mother, who was a minister, the role of introspection on his journey, his development and love of music and acting, his early experiences of acting alongside some of Hollywood's finest, and how his journey evolved from PR consultant to becoming one of the experts in the development of the Code of Ethics for AI. In part two, we'll dive deep into the ethics of AI and John's vision into a more sustainable future society. I hope you enjoy part one of this insight into the vision, passion and faith of John C. Havens. John, welcome to the Impossible Network. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for um, making the time today. Anyone that's a listener to the podcast knows we always start off with our guests' early life. So maybe we could just start with where you grew up. I grew up in Needham, Massachusetts. If you want the Boston accent, I can do it for you. Oh, yeah. Uh, we like that. Oh, my God. It's awesome. It's hard not to swear when you do the Boston accent, so I can, you know, <laughs> I don't know if you guys want the safe, Well, it dep- you know. depends which team you support. Yeah. <laughs> Is it going to be a, a Celtics or uh, Well, what happened, a lot of my childhood stems, my, my parents were amazing. My dad passed away in 2011. My mom is still here and my brother. We were all very close. Um, But in terms of Boston, a lot of my formative experiences were being overweight and made fun of like a lot in the playground. So that also then established the Boston sports culture, at least in the 70s, because I'm 50, was pretty aggressive. You either were into sports at 150% or not. So I didn't dislike sports and I you know I could tell you the 1978 Red Sox team lineup still Carlton Fisk etc 
um, and love the Celtics, Larry Bird, and all that. Um, but great. yeah, but I also really got into the arts because of uh, you know the sort of feeling like an outcast and all that mm-hmm. stuff. And music, playing instruments, theater really became a, a priority. Young, very very young. With siblings, one brother. Uh, he's in Ohio. Great guy. Really Younger? expert. He's older. Marketer, writer, fantastic writer. Right. Okay. And what about your parents? What did they? What, what were their careers? My dad was a psychiatrist, and we figured out he spent about 50,000 hours with patients over the years, and especially being a psychiatrist in the late 60s, 70s, and 80s was a very different era to be a psychiatrist than it is now. It's a lot more accepted. My mom still is a minister in the Methodist church, but she's not in the pulpit. She got a master's of theology so she could uh, work in some different positions. So that... that uh, I always joke, but it's actually true that being raised with introspection was sort of a given in my house. That's interesting. Not heard anyone say that before. Can you expand on that? Sure. I think my dad, although he couldn't talk about his work because his patients, you know, it's sort of the sacrosanct, you don't talk about your patients. He was a deeply introspective person who was very gifted at listening. Um, he also said something right before he passed away, which I mentioned a lot because it means a great deal to me. We were discussing something heatedly about religion or something. And he paused and he said, I have learned to be comfortable in mystery, which always resonated with me, meaning where there's stuff he couldn't answer, this is near his death, he was fine with sort of allowing there to be that in-between space where he didn't need an answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom, in terms of the work that she does, uh, she's not in the pulpit, but with her background in the church, as a sort of servant leader, a lot of her focus is also on listening. And um, introspection, as a very young person, I got into acting and then writing. And all those things are really about studying the human condition, where introspection is actually kind of part of the craft of the job. Is it something that you were conscious of as a child growing up, or is it only something you've acknowledged and reflected on as you've become older? Oh, that's a great question. I don't know if I knew it as a kid except being alone on the playground and by the way I don't want to make it sound like I was you know beaten regularly or something (laughs) it was more just that was a very formative experience there were some very aggressive bully types where I very early on became very comfortable with myself meaning I had to like myself because I was the only person that would hang out with me (laughs) and then um, I also got a lot of empathy for others when they were put in that position Mm -hmm. And then pretty early on, I discovered the, the benefits of introspection, where I think knowing, hey, I'm thinking about myself, whether that's Descartes or not, you mm-hmm. know, f- philosophically, I grew fond with the idea that self-improvement, I was always a big fan of self-improvement. And I think self-improvement has to start with how am I interpreting myself as I am right now? That's really interesting. You went to just one school in Boston all the way through, or did you move? Uh, I. It was this need in Massachusetts, so I went to Broadmeadow Elementary School, and then Pollard Junior High School, and then Needham High School. See, I, I was in a, a, my father was in the armed forces and commercial airlines, so I moved around a lot. So I also found myself situation, <laughs> not knowing anyone, going to different cities and different countries with an mm. accent. And in Scotland and England, if you go from England, uh, Scotland to England, and you're the only Scot in the school. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, you're picked on. Yeah, you, you, yeah. You, 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 you aggressively. To, yeah. yeah, no, I'm... 
you probably had it worse than I did. You yeah. know, I, I just faced like extreme isolation. I didn't have much physical trauma or, you know, religious or whatever persecution. You know, yeah, I had a mix of all of that. Yeah, <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> it makes you quite self-reliant, though. So you look back yeah. at it and see how you start to embrace the world that we're living in today, a world of ambiguity. And as you say, around the importance of self-improvement, that it suddenly you go, oh, OK, this may be that was a worthwhile experience to have as a child. Yep. We'd like to understand a little bit about self-perception, self-belief. That process of looking inward, being on your own. Were you confident in yourself as you grew up? Were your parents encouraging you to be confident? Did they recognize the talents that you had? My parents were, were and my mom still is, beyond gracious and awesome. I'm grateful every day that I had parents. They, they weren't and aren't perfect. That's not the point. That, that they were utterly supportive loving. I went to New York in 1992 to be a professional actor. And as a parent, <clears throat> as a parent, I think especially New York, it's a pretty rough place. And But they knew that I had to follow my heart. That's kind of who I was. Um, from an ideological standpoint, you're the, just coming into a bigger playground. That's all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You were um, ready for it. Yeah. Ideologically, because um, it seems like this show is a perfect place to talk about this stuff. And thank you for that. My, uh, my parents are from a tradition where I'll call them Christ followers, because when you say Christianity in modern times, for good reason, it freaks a lot of people out because they think the Christian right or they think certain ideologies, which will be anti-gay or something else, that is the opposite mm. of what my parents believed in, in the sense of when you actually look at Judeo-Christian scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, I went to college thinking I was going to be a minister. I bring all this up because in the tradition that I was raised in, I saw my two parents when I was pretty young, say eight or nine or 10. Uh, we went to a church for years, a Methodist church, which was really about you know community, eating good food, because Methodists love food, uh, and being together, which was great. But especially with my dad, he was never violent or anything, but he was somewhat angry. And um, I saw him when he s started to say to me, I believe in Jesus now, I saw his demeanor and his character change for months. And I thought, you know, at whatever level, a very visceral level, because I wasn't, you know, doing like a pie chart or something. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, these two people who I live in this house with, I see how they've their demeanor and, and character is, and their actions have changed. And they aren't pressuring me to do something. They aren't saying now you have to do X. I bring all this up because you asked about confidence. Yeah. The tradition that I was raised in was in the scriptures as my parents communicated it to me. And then as I studied it, thinking I was going to be a minister is a message not of do these things and then you get to go to heaven. It was, here is evidence of love, love personified, saying, I love you so much, I'm going to break all the rules of that era and that time for the historical figure of who Christ was, to break every convention. The Romans, you know, did this, and different people wanted him to come and be focused on battle and military. But the main, the main message that was communicated to me is, you are loved, you have worth, because you are here. And that message, especially for, you know, I think a lot of us, and for me, a fat kid who felt very isolated, it wasn't that I shouldn't try to do good things and love others. It was that at the core of who I am, I am loved and I have worth. And that's a message, I think, especially in 2019, with AI and with a lot of other technologies, that message is not often shared in ways that I think I'm trying to share more often. I don't mean just only the uh, 
Christ-oriented traditions. Those traditions are shared in many global traditions. But that message of you have worth because you are here is something I think more people need to hear more it's of. A, it. It's an incredible superpower to have and something that I think few people, I, th I suppose I, reflecting on my own upbringing, never really recognized and was grateful for having um, probably just the, yeah, the love of my parents. And, you know, wasn't abused. Of course, I was beaten senseless sometimes with <laughs> a belt because I was a, a troublesome little kid at times and, and certainly a, a crazy teenager. So I probably thoroughly deserved the, the, the belt. From and I, my I don't mean to laugh at your beatings, by the way. I just mean the way you said it. But no, no. But listen, I've got some stories about, yeah, the, the, the mischief I got up to. But, you know, certainly aside from the discipline, let's say, and I was Protestant um, upbringing with a Catholic father, it was quite, you know, spare the, spare the rod, spoil the child type of thing. I was never really aware of probably the, sort of the suffering and the pain and the abuse that a lot of kids around you suffered. I, my, for example, we interviewed Debbie Millman, um, head of uh, design, uh, the branding program at um, SVA, and she talked about her self-worth, her lack of self-worth, because she didn't experience that love, and she did experience abuse. And her whole life has been a battle to come to terms with herself and who she is and her worthiness in life. And so you were given that, that blessed with that from your parents, which is amazing because it, it conditions you and prepares you for whatever life throws at you. Oh, big time. No, I'm, I'm beyond grateful and realize daily the blessing that I had with them and, and the tradition that I was raised into where over and over and over, I've had multiple times in my life where I've rejected Christ, I've re mm -hmm. rejected the church, a lot of times based on, you know, the people. I forget who, if it was Martin Luther or who, who said it, maybe it was C.S. Lewis, that like, Christ is great, it's the Christians that are a pain in the ass. And, uh, <laughs> and I think that's critical because when you look at the actual, like I went to college... You can pretty much apply that to all the major religions. Yeah, so exactly. But, but when you look at like the examples, like especially if you study Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew, and you look at scriptures and you, ex you examine the historicity of stuff. I'll tell you a quick story, but yeah. I love the story. This is a story in the New Testament. I forget where it is, if it's, it's one of the Gospels, but where it's reported that Christ went to a woman in Samaria at the well. And when you read the story, it sounds like a kind of a nice bedtime story, like, oh, look at that, Jesus is talking to this woman at the well. But when you study it from a historical standpoint, it says, at the heat of the day. Now, why this is relevant is that in a desert culture, why would someone fetch water at the heat of the day? That's because they're an outcast among their people. Now, at that time, for a Jewish man to speak to a woman was also something mm. that would be anathema, right? Meaning not, not yeah. cool. And then he's a rabbi. And Samaritans at that time for, for Jews were also complete. It's not even enemies. You can't really describe it well. It's complete. Don't be near Pariah. them. Pariah. Pariah, yeah. exactly. Mm. So when you read the story and you dig in, you dig in, you dig in. What you realize is here's an example of a person who everyone was saying, why are you talking to that other person? Jesus. And then you realize the message of speaking to a person, meeting them where they are. The message was not, you know, I think he said, if that's the right story, go and sin no more. But the main message of the story was, uh, to me at least, here's a guy who's breaking all the conventions of what people at that time said you should do, who is walking forward in love and saying, I'm breaking all these rules because I am here to love you well. You have worth. Mm -hmm. Outside of the fact that you are anathema to Jews, men, and your own women, mm -hmm. because you're here at the heat of the day. That means the other women in her culture consider her pariah. So I love those stories because it's very challenging to love other people. It's very easy to judge. But I also, my parents and my mom still 
over and over and over, I see them living their faith where you can't, it's like dating. I can't introduce two friends and say, you guys should fall in love. I learned very early on proselytizing mm -hmm. doesn't work, but sharing your faith or more importantly, living it, uh, whatever that faith is, whatever the tradition yeah. is, is something that I very much got that message from them. Mm. No, that's very uplifting. It's funny, I was in a meeting with a woman from um, runs an event called the Cause Marketing Summit, uh, Jennifer Richley, and she was just telling me she came down, she's moved with her husband and two kids up to uh, Mystic, and she's come down for a few days for meetings and one with, with me this morning, and she said last night she was coming down past Madison Square Garden, just saw this guy homeless on his own, but didn't look like he was suffering from some mental wellness issues or addiction, just looked too normal. So she went up and said, Oh, do you mind if I sit down with you and understand your story? And he said, yeah, um, six months ago, uh, he got back from his work, a labor, late night, decided to have a cigarette, uh, fallen asleep, apartment in the Bronx burnt down, his fiance, baby, 33-year-old, died, he was thrown in jail, police suspected foul play, lost his job, month later released, on the street, nowhere to live, dealing with this pain, the funerals had happened, he wasn't able to attend, can you imagine? And she sat with him and said, oh my God, this is horrific. What, what, what do you need? And he said, I've got nothing. I've got nowhere to go. The only thing, you know, it comes from Puerto Rico. And he said, the only thing that could, would help me, he said, is just to get back to Puerto Rico. And she went, damn, I, I'll buy you a ticket. So she went back up to there today to meet him and meet his counselor and to arrange to give her JetBlue miles and $150 extra needed and is going to get him on a flight wow. to go and see his family. And it's that, when you hear little stories like that, it becomes uplifting. It's just similar, made me think of that when you're recounting that story. Well, uh, the end of it, obviously, what a beautiful story of kindness. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, as of late, like Eastern traditions, Buddhism, Taoism, uh, certainly Judaism, which I consider is a formative part of my faith because the Old Testament is sort of a projection to the New Testament. And then a lot of non-religious traditions, but where you lead with kindness and empathy and in that example, certainly the sacrificial aspect of giving up those miles. Um, and, that, and money as well. And money. Yeah. But, you know, what a gift that she has for the rest of her life to know. Yeah, and to transform. And she said, look, the only condition I lay on you is once a year, you need to check in with me. Oh, what a great story. What a so, great... Yeah, it's uplifting. Anyway, let's crack on. Um, before we move on to your education, just give me a little bit of sense of how the role of the importance of play and the freedom you were given to explore and how safe your environment was. I mean, aside from the playground and the, the isolation, were you a curious, explorative, playful child? Uh, yeah, my um, one big thing with my brother and I, Andy, uh, his mind has always been incredible as a writer, as a thinker. We were very much geeks, so technology, every science fiction movie that was out, every, every book fantasy-wise, so there was certainly the imagination mm -hmm. side. He's an amazing writer. He really inspired me to be a writer. I've written three books and all that. That comes from him. And then as an actor, I just was insanely, you know, I've always been a ham. So <laughs> I remember I was on stage as a kid, and the first time I got a laugh, there was this visceral warmth of like, oh, I want more of that. Huh. And then I realized what catharsis was and got into the craft of acting and realized that it's got a very medicinal, theatrical, you know, old-school Greek catharsis is about helping others live their pain through watching you and so um all that stuff and then music my dad had a beautiful tenor voice 
and I've played blues, guitar, and harmonica, and drums since I was 13. So being 50, that means those instruments have been with me throughout all my life, and that actual playing is a communal thing where obviously once you are, unless you're doing solo stuff, you're, you're in a band, you have to listen to each other. There's a consciousness that forms in a blues band because the form, like one, four, five in the right key, everyone knows the form, but it's then not just soloing for the sake of let me turn up and, you know, solo. It's about are we creating a dynamic mm -hmm. together that very much takes on its own life, as it were. Do you have your harmonica here today? I do. It is always with right. me. <laughs> we might have to have a little um, finish the show with a bit of harmonica. <laughs> I'd be happy to. You know, people who know me know I play it all the time. So You're the second guest, and your guest, I think guest number 32, 33, that's played a harmonica. And oh, really? Dave, Bur Dave Burrs, if you want to listen to him, he's written. A, he's, a, he's a writer as well. Oh, wonderful. And he's written a book. Um, his latest book is How to Get to Great Ideas. Hmm. Uh, so he's an ex-ad guy, um, but he's a writer, filmmaker. And he plays harmonica as well. Nice. And he, when he does his talks and, and on stage, he starts with harmonica, like I've seen you do as well. Uh, that's awesome. And it's right. great. A blues and brother. I, get I would to love to then. see the two of you. Yeah, I'll connect you. I think you'd like each other. He comes across here quite a lot to do consulting oh, cool. work. So yeah, I'd love to meet him. And he's a tech guy as well. He's digital. So he's, yeah, he, they right in the same wheelhouse. So um, what about school? What was school like for the young John? Well, I went to college at a small Christian college called Messiah College, and I always joke because in high school, it was a secular high school, and I was the Christian freak there, and I was working too hard to proselytize at that point, even though I, you know, I think my heart was in the right place, but there, talking about Jesus sometimes freaked people out. Were and you still wanting to be, at this point, um, a, priest, a minister? A minister, yeah. yeah. I went to college thinking I was majoring in history. I took a second major in theater, and then I'll tell you that story in a second, but when I went to college, it was a strict Brethren in Christ tradition, which is, um, I can go into it, strict meaning at that time you had to sign what was called a uh, ethos statement where you wouldn't drink, dance, or smoke. And on that campus, I met a lot of people who very much lived their faith. They were very inspirational. I also met a lot of people whose parents forced them to go there because they thought going to a Christian school would make them, quote, Reform them. a good Christian. And I'm being very judgmental by saying that. But it was a really interesting dichotomy to go from the high school to college experience. Because at the end of the day, it's like you recognize truth, right? You recognize love. And it, it flies above the sort of convention of do the right things according to whoever else is saying things are right. If it doesn't start with empathy and it doesn't come from a place of kindness, mm -hmm. that to me is a big bellwether of like, ah, oh, I think there's an agenda here that I don't really yeah. want to feed into. But it was in my sophomore year where I had a wonderful theater professor named Earl Genzel who said, you should go to the Williamstown Theater Festival if you want to be an actor, meaning you have these skills. Don't go to the pulpit thinking you could have been an actor because that's not the right way to go. So Williamstown is this, they call it a theater for the stars, a summer theater for the summer where, theater where camp. It's in Williamstown, Massachusetts. Um, and I grew up, I turned oh, equity there. You mean where the Clark is? Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, I've been where the Williams School is. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, yeah, it's I Williams College. It's a lovely place. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, there's summer theater. Now it's probably 45 years. Nikos Sakharopoulos started it way back when, and it started off like they would do five musicals and then one Chekhov play. His heart was with Chekhov. And so he sort of converted the local audience to start to fall in love with these amazing shows, original and classics. So even in my apprentice year, I was in a play with Christopher Reeve. I was in a play with, I forget all the different people there, but then when I turned equity, because they have different ways you can kind of grow up. It, it, before your equity, I won't 
give you all the specifics, but mm. to get into the union is hard. So they turn you equity, and it means then you are actually now in the actor's union. So I got to turn equity on a play where I was in a play with Cherry Jones, a number of other wonderful actors, but, but also Christopher Walken, Whoa. Uh, Bla <laughs> Blythe Danner, and Gwyneth Paltrow in The Seagull. So oh I got paid goodness. to sit around, and I was Yakov. I had like four lines, but what it was year incredible. Was this would have been 95 or 96. So it was right before Gwyneth got ultra huge famous. Sliding doors. And she was such But it must have been around the time person. that Walken did True Romance, where he played oh, yeah. one of the great <laughs> roles that he played. Yeah, yeah, that scene with him and uh, Duvall. Yeah. Is, it du is it Duvall? No, who is it? It's uh, him and... Um, oh, da Christian Slater's dad. Um, Dennis Hopper. Dennis Hopper and, yeah. Christopher Walker in a great scene and written by Quentin Tarantino called True Romance, a wonderful one. Anyway, what an experience. Yeah, no, acting, you know, when you get into the craft of acting, right, it really is introspection, meaning your job is to go, you read a script and you say, who are these people? As a young actor, I think a lot of times, and I thought this too, you, you, you're like, oh, this is a funny skip, a script. I'll say these lines and people will laugh. Or this is a dramatic script. I'll say these lines and people will cry. The word actor comes from action, meaning your actual job is to try to embody and deeply empathize with a character. They can be murderer, they can be whatever. Your job is not to judge them. Your job is to enter into who they are. But then your work on stage is to actually, if you and I were in a scene, is each night I have to come from a real place of who is this person and what am I trying to do in this scene? So one night might be my inner monologue is, I want you to give me money, even though the script, it might not say that. But every line then is delivered with a very specific action, which will change my tone, my demeanor. Um, all that is to say, it's a really hard profession because outside of all the auditioning and stuff that people say, oh, it's a hard life. It really means you have to give in to the ability uh, to try to really not just become these people and lose yourself in them, but in one sense, deeply empathize with all these people. Because if you play them and you're judging them, then you will be fake and people won't care. You have to, doesn't mean that if someone's a murderer, you play them and go, oh, I could be a murderer too. The point is that you say, how would someone get to that position? And um, how, how could I empathize with them on such a level that I can play them with truth? I mean, being around some of these great actors, were there any experiences where you learned some great insight or something rubbed off on you or they inspired you? Oh, yeah. I got to do one Broadway show. I was in a show called Steel Pier in 1997. I also met or I married my wife, Stacy, Stacy that, that year. So it was a very good year. And uh, one of the best actresses, comedic actresses, still today is a woman named Deb Monk. I had the pleasure of being her dance partner in Steel Pier. And uh, Susan uh, Stroman, who choreographed that show, then went on to direct a number of shows. She's now very well-known. Scott Ellis, the director, is very well-known. So, And the guys that wrote the show uh, were Kane Ornette, the guys that wrote Cabaret. Mm -hmm. So I got to meet John and Fred and work with them. That was astounding. Wow. Like Liza Minnelli came to rehearsals and stuff. So that whole experience was just mind-blowing. But Deb... Is it okay to swear, by the yeah, way? Of course, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. One of my favorite stories, because like, along with like this lore of acting is like the actual craft and day-to-day. -day and, and we were talking about when you get a script, you know, what you actually do as an actor <laughs> is you read through it and you, and you read through it. <laughs> and this is a Deb quote. 
is you read through it and you're like, bullshit, bullshit, my line, bullshit, <laughs> bullshit, my line, because you're like, how big is the part? And so anyway, she, she is, uh, but if you see her work in Steel Pier, for instance, she had this amazing comedic number in act one, and this beautiful, riveting, dramatic number in act two. So I have all these wonderful experiences that I can tell you about. Oh, wonderful. We might have to do two episodes for this, but let's see how let's see how we get on. We were talking about education. You went to Williams. You started experience acting. What was the point at which you went? It's not the pulpit. It's the stage, or the screen. Oh, that's a great question. I th I think it was probably that summer where I realized my ministry, as it were, may be more effective by performing than it would be in a pulpit, and that's kind of how it turned out to be meaning meeting people, interacting with them, being able to expand my consciousness, as it were, in terms of how can you love more people well as an actor in New York City, especially. Uh, and I also tempt during the day. I was a sucky waiter, so I did a lot of office work, which is why I'm doing a lot of the work I'm doing now, which is great. The more people that you meet, the more opportunity to know how can I love other people well based on who I am. and. Um, there's a risk, depending on what tradition you go to and then how, where you end up being in a pulpit, uh, it can be easy to become very kind of insular and focused on that Imagine, one yeah. congregation, which is, by the way, there's many that do it beautifully. It's just that for me, there was all that. And also just I knew I was like, if I'm not performing in front of people, um, I will not be fulfilling a gift that I feel God has given me to share. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really important. Well, you were at this I'm going to jump into the question about serendipity because it's a, a core part of why we do these podcasts. So what chance encounters or happy accidents or serendipitous events or experiences changed the course of your or direction of your life? Oh, man, there's so many. And I love serendipity. And I know the phrase even orchestrating serendipity mm. is somewhat ironic, but yeah, I love I it. Well, engineering, if we think you can engineer serendipity. Yeah, yeah. which I'd love to hear your, 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 uh, your theory on that. Um, I think the biggest one is certainly my wife, Stacy. What happened there is, uh, I guess, engineered serendipity is a great way to put it. My buddy and I, Mike Yeager, we went to Williamstown together. He's a gifted director. And uh, we both got back to New York City after the summer. And we're like, you know what? We suck at picking women up at bars. And also, that was never something we wanted to do. Like, But we wanted to meet mm. people that we could date. And this was back in the day, pre-dating you know, dating apps and all that. So we created a brunch, and every Saturday for about three years, we just invited everyone. It was called The Good Diner on the west side. We said, come to The Good Diner, Saturday at 11. We hang out for like two hours, bring anybody. And my wife was brought by a mutual friend, Nancy, a dear friend. And one thing that's really cool is, again, pre-social media, we passed around a physical book and said, sign in the journal. And then we took a Polaroid or a picture with someone's camera. So I have a picture nice. of the day that we met. And so, you know, the purpose for us to set up that brunch tactically was so we could meet people where we could actually speak to them, you know, because you come on Saturday morning at 11 kind of in grungy clothes and your hair's, you know, you had a baseball cap on. You're talking to people in ways like, can I actually be with you? And yeah. So I asked Stacy out on a date or asked her for a coffee, I think. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't like too aggressive. But because of that uh, engineered serendipity, I got to meet the love of my life. Oh, that's lovely. I think we could do with a few more good diners in the city today. <laughs> I think it'd be a lot of people queuing up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
and we'll probably we're going to come and talk about technology and particularly the impact of let's say machine learning and artificial intelligence on our humanity but maybe we can now pivot to work and life focus so i met you at an event where you were talking about artificial intelligence <laughs> can you explain to me the pathway from the stage and screen work to ending up being an expert and also a writer around issues such as artificial intelligence. Okay, so just to be clear, like this interview, I'm John, the author, the writer, the consultant. Um, so all the stuff I'm saying is me and doesn't reflect formal IEEE policy. That said, I'm thrilled and honored to work with IEEE. And you asked how I kind of ended up there. So I've written a lot for Mashable and The Guardian, um, as well as my three books. And I was doing an exploratory series of interviews about if there was a code of ethics for AI. Having watched all the Terminator movies and all mm -hmm. that for years, it was about 2013. I just was like, all right, this is going to become pervasive. Machine learning, AI, whatever, AGI, ASI, whatever this is going to become, it's not going to be minor. And for me, I never call myself a futurist, but where I see a lot of patterns developing and trends, it's like, well, this, this stuff is all going to increase. And, so the more people I would call and interview, CTOs, entrepreneurs, I realized there wasn't a common code of ethics for AI. Mm -hmm. There wasn't even a common taxonomy for what that question meant. Like, what do you mean code of ethics? Do you mean professional code of ethics? Like, well, there's the Hippocratic Oath. I was like, no, I mean, when you design stuff, what questions are you asking to know that the end user, when they interact with it, they won't get freaked out? Or the opposite, that you're going to build and, and improve their well-being knowingly, and that will delight them. And usually the answer was, mm, well, Asimov's laws of robotics, we think about, and that's the do no harm and all yeah. that stuff. And, and um, Asimov is a you know, huge inspiration. That was science fiction. Yeah, <laughs> it was huge inspiration to me. And if you, you, know, you read the story, uh, the short story from the 50s, it, he wrote it from my understanding um, to demonstrate the conundrum or the challenge of saying here's three or four rules that will work in all situations. So what then through my good fortune, that series led to my most recent book called Artificial Intelligence, Embracing Our Humanity to Maximize Machines. And I was working on that book when I got invited by IEEE to speak at South by Southwest. Mm -hmm. I've spoken there about eight or nine times. And, and I didn't really know who they were, but I was like, cool, you're paying for me to come, <laughs> I'm there. And um, I was delighted that a wonderful woman named Eileen Locke was in the audience. Um, another guy uh, named James Pendergrast, who was the former executive director, uh, Eileen was on the board, and she was senior legal counsel of IEEE. And I was like, wait a second, so who are you guys? And I got to know them, and I'm like, oh, you were founded by Edison, so you're you know, 100 plus years old. You're the largest engineering-based community on the planet. Uh, they have members in over 160 countries. It's volunteer-driven, it's nonprofit, like all these things that were like, check, 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 what is John's heart in now? Um, because after I was in PR, I was in a space where I was consulting, but technology and well-being, the intersection of those two things, are the heart of my work, mm -hmm. meaning not technology on its own and not well-being on its own, the intersection. Anyway, so I went and pitched them, and I said, look, this code of ethics for AI thing, I think you guys should build it because you're kind of like the UN, the United Nations of technology, yeah. and anyone can join. You don't have to be members. It's not elitist. Um, and more importantly, when, when you make recommendations on things to build, it will actually technically work. <laughs> you know, like the philosophers and ethicists who I love, and they're a very huge part of our work, obviously. Uh, you still need people who can say, 
well, how does the code make this happen and how yeah. do the blueprints actually make the autonomous vehicle drive? And so anyway, I, I went and, um, and I, I can go more into that, but I presented and there were a couple of amazing people there who have helped make the work since 2015 really flourish and blossom to where it is today. Okay, that's all for now, folks. Come back for part two, where we dive deep into the ethics of AI, John's vision for a more sustainable future society, and so much more. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcast player you listen to subscribe and rate. And if you like the show, please give us a five-star rating, as it helps more people discover us. If you want to learn more, or have someone you'd like us to interview, just visit us at theimpossiblenetwork.com or DM us on Instagram at theimpossiblenetwork. For now, be curious, be creative, and be open to serendipity. See you next time.